This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Discover Zayo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low latency, reliable 400 gig and 800 gig enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a special guest because he's been on the show before and he's here to talk all things about cybersecurity. He is the CIO of a company called Team Cymru. And it, for a reminder, is the Welsh term for the name of the country. All right. So Team Cymru spelled C-Y-M-R-U, the CIO, Dave Monier. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Listen, there are new people joining IT Visionaries all the time. So it's possible that some of them haven't heard your first episode when you were on before. If you could, please give us a reminder. What is Team Cymru and what do you guys do? So Team Cymru is a intelligence provider, uh, both B2B in the sense that uh, we provide intelligence into people's security products, uh, but we also provide uh, direct access uh, to our insights. Uh, we track malicious actors, uh, their activities, behaviors, things like that around the world. Uh, and we work with the internet community as a whole. Uh, think of it in sense, uh, you know, the people that actually make the internet work. Uh, we work with them to help them remove, you know, unwanted traffic from their networks, uh, help them maximize monetization of the links that they own uh, by helping them, like I said, remove unwanted uh, traffic from there. Uh, and in the course of doing so, uh, we learn about bad actor uh, behaviors and activities around the world. Uh, and we help good guys catch bad guys or at least keep them off their networks. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely necessary thing. We I've seen a lot of content recently, um, both in news articles, but business publications, job boards that talks about, hey, there's a lot of categories of business that are you know declining in terms of headcount or job openings. But one of them that hasn't stopped is cybersecurity. And it keeps getting bigger. Uh, we see since we last were on the show, when you were last were on the show, you know, GPT has taken over the world. More people are asking, like, can AI be a part of this? Is AI going to be part of the toolkit of the bad actors? Give us an idea of how quickly this landscape is shifting because the emergence of AI has more and more businesses investing in it, and they're it's going to start playing a part in cybersecurity. Do you see a place? Let's start there. Like, where do you see changing really quickly for you in your category? Because there are so many cybersecurity job openings right now, uh, so the demand is, is going through the roof. Yeah, no, demand is uh, massive. Um, a lot of that, I think, is being affected by policy and regulation. Uh, there's a lot of industries that have had uh, these types of positions become requirements uh, in order for them to maintain things like ISO certifications or uh, to be HIPAA compliant or, or SOX compliant. You know, So those types of regulatory things are, are driving a lot of this. So because you can't really, uh, like, for example, if you started, if you went to make a bank today, uh, you would be required to have you know, security staff on there. So, um, you know, when it comes to AI and InfoSec, um, you know, there's a lot of understanding that you have to have if you're considering AI and its role in InfoSec. And the first is that uh, chat, you mentioned ChatGPT. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that ChatGPT is just a large language model. It's not 
going to really be able to solve things for you. Uh, and it's only going to be able to tell you things that it has learned along its learning process, right? Uh, and that will be determined by what it read. So similar to, uh, you know, the expression garbage in, garbage out, uh, you know, you don't really know uh, what those large language models have uh, been trained with typically. So I would be hesitant for people to put a lot of reliance into at least the GPT style uh, uh, AI approach. Now, generative AI, um, which is kind of what's going to be the next step, um, and you see quite a bit of it today uh, around things like image creations and like, you know, you can do these deep fake technologies and whatnot. That type of more, let's call it more creative AI, uh, I think will be a major player in uh, InfoSec space once the computational requirements of it uh, come down. Like right now, uh, you would either have to rely on somebody else's like external, you know, massive CPU farm to be making, you know, decisions for you, or you'll have to wait until uh, the cost of executing your own local AI uh, becomes more realistic. But um, its application in InfoSec, though, I think is fairly obvious. Um, I think, for example, uh, even things like the large language models, if you were to feed uh, your security events, for example, all of your logs, if you were to feed all of your logs into something like an LLM, I think it is possible like today to say, judging by what you see, you know, probing our network, judging by what you see interacting with our infrastructure, judging by what you see uh, behavior wise in our user base, what's the likelihood that this is actually an attacker relative to how this user behaved yesterday or how the network looked yesterday, that type of stuff. In those aspects, I think AI is uh, has the potential to be groundbreaking because they, uh, you know, AI doesn't get bored uh, with looking at an event screen. Uh, you know, a SOC analyst, I hate to say it, but SOC analysts do. Uh, yeah. When you sit there for eight hours and you're just looking at events scroll by, uh, you know, IP addresses and domain information and all of this stuff, it starts to just become a blur, right? Uh, and AI doesn't, doesn't get tired. It doesn't uh, do those things. But I don't think that AI is going to be an upsetter as far as manpower goes. Uh, I don't see uh, AI having the same impact in InfoSec that it does in, for example, software design. Um, You know, I can say uh, that already, I mean, I've used ChatGPT to save myself you know, double digit hours of coding time uh, because I was able to write a completely modular piece of uh, software to do um, flow analysis. So you take uh, NetFlow data and uh, look at it. Well, I was able to write um, or have ChatGPT write, I should say. Uh, I was able to have it write, you know, basically a modular frame kit uh, uh, framework around a problem that I had. I was able to solve it in like, you know, an hour and a half of uh, tweaking around with, uh, with it. And I was giving it commands in like spoken human language uh, not, I didn't have to tell it, you know, uh, what types uh, of uh, data inputs it would be. I just told it it's going to be related to this specific protocol. It then went out and referenced the RFC. It then knew what the fields already were uh, because it's a, you know, it's a protocol. Uh, so all of that work I didn't have to do. Uh, and in the end, I had, you know, something uh, written in Python uh, that I could uh, get started with. And I didn't have to uh, do, you know, all of that work. So in software, that's easy, right? Uh, But, or I shouldn't say easy, but that's, you know, makes that process much easier. And InfoSec, I don't think that that will always be the case. I think when you're considering a machine uh, trying to make decisions, 
it's hard for the machine to incorporate nuance. Um, so it could, it could be very useful to show you something is weird, uh, but whether it's truly uh, benign or whether it's malicious, I think it will struggle with that. I think it's only going to be able to say the, the likelihood. So I could see AI making uh, the life of a SOC uh, engineer or a SOC technician uh, operator. I could see it making them easier as in like, hey, here's more important things to look at. So you don't have to f- swim through them and try to yeah. identify the important stuff. Uh, but I could see it making that part easier. But I predict humans will always be in the mix. I just wanted to hear your take on it because I saw there was a recent article. I think it came out today. Maybe it came out yesterday. Uh, Fortune magazine did a, they did a study and they found out that GPT or specifically chat GPT's accuracy is going down and its ability yeah. to solve math problems is going down. And I was thinking about what you just said, which is garbage in garbage out. But if it's taking the inputs from different people, like if people are literally saying two plus two equals three, and it sees that enough. How does it know that it's not three? <laughs> right. Yeah, and absolutely. So- <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the, you know, the poison apple, right? Yeah. That's the, uh, uh, that's the downfall of it. And, the, you know, there are people who are hacking chat GPT, hacking in the sense that making it do things that the designers potentially didn't consider or, or yeah. you know, didn't think were capable. Uh, and I've seen some, uh, for lack of a better word, let's call it a jailbreak. Uh, I've seen some jailbreaks for ChatGPT that are uh, astounding to where you can convince it to violate its own directives just by telling it to pretend like it's allowed to. All of that interaction in theory goes back into the pool of knowledge that that large language model uses, right? It's If you note, uh, if ever you use uh, ChatGPT and ask it about something current, it will tell you uh, that its external inputs were cut off at a certain date. And I believe it yes. was uh, 2021. But yes. if you note, it doesn't say my inputs were turned off. It just says my external inputs. And I assume what that means is interactions with it are still going into some kind of knowledge base. Uh, and if enough people lie to ChatGPT, it won't know. Uh, and it'll <laughs> think that the lie is true. I think it's, uh, I think one of the things, my my suspicion is it can tell when you're copying and pasting information out. So it's like kind of measuring its own validity and accuracy or usability or usefulness in its ability to re- gender those uh, generate responses. But um, the 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 thing that is unique about us at IT Visionaries is we get pitched all the time from different CIOs, CTOs, CEOs. They want to come on the show and they we you know we always ask them about the product, what's it do, and how's it work. And there's a been a wave. There's literally been a wave of cybersecurity companies who talk about protecting your networks and they talk about using AI specifically to monitor, detect, and squish threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the promise is always you won't need as many people, you won't need as many um, you know infosec engineers or whatever the case may be. Because a lot of companies, software is a big part of their business, but it's not their only business, right? So let's mm-hmm. imagine I'm a retailer and I'm a retailer over here and I'm growing really fast and I'm going from one location to ten and I want to lock down my networks. I want to give my customers a good experience. I'm not a CIO. I get pitched this idea. David, what would you tell them what they should be looking at and how should they evaluate these pitches? Because a lot of people are saying they have an AI model that can do this and you're not going to need people. That's typically the brand promise. Yeah, I would say that's a very perilous uh, take. Um, So, And the first reason that I would provide uh, is where do your uh, where will your expertise come from? Uh, if you eliminate the entry level positions. So, um, you know, how I became uh, an industry uh, capable uh, 
person was because before I got to becoming CIO, uh, I was a sysadmin, right? Well, if you automate away uh, these lowest jobs, let's say you get rid of your SOC analysts, right? Well, if you get rid of tier one, who's going to staff your tier two and where are they supposed to get the experience to do so? And then therefore, how do you get to tier three? So what they'll do, uh, what will happen, uh, I would predict, uh, is you would inadvertently actually change uh, the dynamic of your workforce pool to where people who were naturally adept at doing these things would start to demand even higher salaries. And you, uh, though you might think, hey, uh, we're saving money by not having to have as many low-level people uh, because AI has stepped in and is starting to make these capabilities, you are inadvertently creating a future model uh, where uh, your uh, senior most people become unicorns of sorts because mm. there is no on-ramp for people to kind of become a senior person because, well, you've automated away, uh, you know, the foundational jobs. So that would be my first uh, warning or not warning, but advice to someone is I would say, are you sure you want to actually uh, eliminate your experience pool and the ability to tailor your own, right? I mean, if you can move somebody up from your lowest position in your company to the highest position in your company through the entire experiences in your workflows is in your uh, business focus. And all of that is the only experience they have. That person is going to perform considerably better than someone who maybe learned uh, these talents somewhere else and then comes to you. Maybe their workflow is different. Maybe their understanding of your business is, is not there at all. So that's uh, the first challenge. But second of all, I would tell people, um, you know, we still struggle with the fundamentals in information security. So uh, still today, uh, user accounts, uh, either by way of phishing or uh, password reuse, things like that, user accounts and direct access are still the number one cause of breach today. Mm-hmm. It's There are uh, zero-day attacks and there are all of these kind of movie plot uh, kind of scenarios. Those do happen, uh, but the large percentage of them, that's not how it happens. Most of the ransomware Uh, that you read about uh, starts with a very fundamental problem, right? So these fundamentals, we are still struggling with all of these fundamentals. So if if we still have a position where we can't do the basics right, probably the last thing that you should be focusing on is some kind of uh, whiz-bang thing that nobody really understands uh, that is like, how do you know that your AI knows these fundamentals? How do you know that its application of fundamental security is going to be appropriate. You wouldn't really know. Uh, So my advice to people is, uh, you know, obviously don't discount AI. I certainly believe it does have its place in particular with things like uh, spotting anomalies. Uh, You know, it will be very good at that. Uh, But overall, I would tell people like if AI is the pitch, as opposed to a solution being the pitch, uh, you're probably uh, getting sold some kind of snake oil. That would be my <laughs> that would be my suspicion. The way you just described the building of expertise through repetition or experience is exactly one of the things I think about when people keep saying like, "Oh, the entry level positions will be replaced." Well, it's like, but then who will be the next person? I think you hit the nail on the head. And I'll I'll use a non technical thing that I experienced. So my first gig out of um, my first gig, I wanted to be a a motorcycle mechanic out of school. Like I I did, I went to MMI, I knew how to fix bikes. And I remember all the tests were easy. Like that was easy. Like any test, like, oh, this is how a carburetor works. This is how an EFI works. This is how everything works. And I'm like, ah, test on paper. Great. You roll a bike into the shop. 
what's wrong with it? Now it's like, oh, I'm confused. I have not seen this problem, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then like, and then like, because my dream was to be a race tech because I wanted to tour the world and you could go uh, on the MotoGP circuit and go around the world. But those guys can know what's wrong with the bike as it rolls in. Like they, like they, you know what I mean? Like they don't need a diagnostics tool. They're like, I already know what's wrong with it. I'm going to fix it right wow. now. <laughs> and it's, and uh, that level of knowledge and domain experience that you gain, like you just suggested, will Will, I mean, I never thought about that, but I think you're absolutely right. That will become a problem if people don't invest in cybersecurity, people invest in network security, people don't invest in building these skills uh, to understand these threat attacks. Yeah, we struggle with it um, a lot today, in my, in my opinion, even uh, you know, people who, uh, what I call over-focus uh, in their disciplines, right? Where there are people who are like, I'm specifically uh, this part of the uh, security process. I'm a SIM person, or I'm, mm-hmm. a, uh, I'm a code analysis, code review person, right? Um, that all, uh, that's great to have those talents, but if you don't have a broad domain knowledge, how do you? How are you framing what you do know against you know the rest of it? Like uh, you know, in my opinion, any every security practitioner should have uh, reasonably strong network experience. They should know, uh, uh, and I'm not talking deep stuff, but like you don't have to know all 254, 53 potential IP protocols, uh, but you do need to know uh, the difference between tunneling protocols like IPIP and GRE, uh, and not just limit yourself to TCP IP, uh, UDP IP, and ICMP. I mean, those, you know, you you can't just limit yourself to that. And this isn't isn't even yet uh, domain experience in InfoSec. I mean, like, how does the network work? How are you Mm going to defend something if you don't know how it works? I would argue that people have to understand how a kernel works and at the operating system level. How is memory uh, mapped? Uh, and then execute it. How does uh, a CPU function? How, what is a register? You know, basic uh, core stuff. Uh, and if you proceed down this path uh, where uh, everybody's hyper specialized, a bunch of the tasks have been uh, AIified, let's call it. Uh, um, where will that information come from? Where you know where will that be? And I still predict that uh, it overall would actually make uh, finding uh, experts in that space. To where your your uh, cost to employ those people would go up significantly. Uh, I think you hit the nail on the head, and I think companies like yours would also see rates go through the roof through just sheer demand. Uh, I think Absolutely. a great analogy you just hit is like probably like what we are currently experiencing in the trades. Right? There's people that have unique trades. So if you have something wrong with your house, you have people that have. I'm a plumber, I'm an electrician, but you, if you don't know what's actually wrong before you call somebody, you could possibly get multiple people in there that say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And what ends up happening is there's so much demand for them. That's why the costs are up. And this fractionalization of skill and also lack of supply of people in that is, was, is what's ultimately changed trade work for everybody. Everyone's experiencing this. I, I don't know anyone who hasn't not identified that like the cost to get your house repaired has gone through the roof in the last, let's say, three years. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> and and that's, uh, you know, that's a big cultural thing, too. You know, like um, uh, we ha- we do have this culture where we believe that technology uh, is some kind of silver bullet uh, or that, uh, you know, there's a hustle or a hack or an angle to everything. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, and and uh, I think that's, you know, why trade schools uh, have so few people going to, to them because everybody wants to go get some, you know, sexy IT job uh, where they imagine themselves, you know, uh, going to be rich for, and uh, requiring less effort, less labor. Um, but my family uh, back where I grew up in the Midwest, they're largely all tradesmen, uh, yeah. all, all of them. Their uh, workforce, they're, they're like a, when I would go say like a Memorial Day cookout or something, and they invite people, you know, that they work with over. One thing I noticed is there were very few young people. Uh, and this is now, uh, you know, we're probably 30 years into this decline of those trades. So, yeah. um, and and in this case, it's, you know, because people don't want to do dirty work, right? Or whatever you want to call it. There's a saying, uh, everybody wants the money, but no one wants the work, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, and I think the trades are there. And InfoSec, I would argue, is technology work is, is largely no different. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of people, there's not many people who want to go out and, and physically run Ethernet uh, through a building. They don't want to do the low voltage uh, wiring, or they don't want to, uh, even people who like build out racks of systems, uh, just go look at the average cable management uh, in any data center. The average is a big rat's nest on the back of the. I've seen them. You know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Marie Kondo and, definitely didn't do it. Like it's like, <laughs> absolutely. Like, like every plug that was a plug that you know no one untied or uncoiled. Like it just turns into like a like you just said uh, rat's nest or I don't know I don't even know how to describe it, but it it would take like who knows how many hours just to untangle it, let alone. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, and in the end, people just unplug the two ends and just leave it all and run new uh, run new cables. Yeah, they just run uh, a new line across the old ones. They unplug the old ones, run a new line across it. Absolutely. And they usually leave the old one there. I've seen it. Absolutely. So but because to, in their mind uh, that, you know, grunt work uh, is no fun uh, and you don't want to do it. Instead, you want to just plug in your router, log in and configure it and go and, you know, make packets flow. And I get that. I, I understand why that is. But there's a reason why. Uh, you have to do the hard work because like you said, what are you going to do later when you have to do physical maintenance on your systems and you don't even know where, <laughs> what's plugged into what and, and all that. So uh, even just disciplines like that, uh, if you note, uh, like if you outsource wiring uh, of a physical data center today, it's very expensive because no one really wants to do that work. Hey there, IT Visionaries listeners. It's time to supercharge your network with Zeo, the North American leader in modern network infrastructure. Zeo connects critical data centers across the United States, Canada, and Europe with high-capacity metro fiber and extensive long-haul dark fiber. Trusted by the world's most innovative companies, Zeo embodies what's next in networking. Discover Zeo's expansive network maps on their website and see where their network can take you. With low-latency, reliable 400G and 800G-enabled routes, it's the modern network solution you've been searching for. Visit Zayo's website today to unlock the power of your network and tap into the technologies of tomorrow. Go to zayo.com slash network right now. This is really fascinating. I did, you know, when I first, when we first sat down to talk, I didn't know we were, you would take this angle or have this point of view, but it's, I mean, it's so applicable. I mean, it's so reasonable. Your hypothesis is so reasonably true. I mean, I, I definitely see this is happening. For yourself, you know, Cumbria's got an interesting position, like many um, ISPs or 
people that are basically servicing the work for companies. And you get to see so much in regards mm-hmm. to like how modern networks and the modern internet or modern technology is going to be built across. Right now, you mentioned it earlier that InfoSec, government policy compliance is actually one of the big drivers of a lot of this change. Uh, uh, your company specifically on your website, and this might not even be up to date, we just found on your website, it's it's uh, working across 86 countries. Mm-hmm. Give us an idea of you know, you have the task of building a unified cybersecurity framework, and you have to account for, you already said, cultures, governments, legal, technical. How do you approach, how does your company go about this approach? Do you learn all the rules of every single country? Like, yes, and I, I'm assuming you have to, but give us an idea of your approach of how to do this. Um, so we obviously, we have general counsel, right? So um, <laughs> for starters, we don't, we don't just uh, look up laws and, and try to make decisions on them. But um, so we have general counsel, of course. But, um, you know, we have one advantage in that uh, our service outputs, uh, so the services that we provide uh, are largely, so we, we uh, our, our products for the most part are, you know, software as a service. Um, so people uh, come to us to get, you know, answers, if you will. Uh, but on our other side of the house, which is uh, where we uh, acquire uh, data. So, you know, we're doing data exchanges with people. Now, that's where uh, the kinds of situations that you've described come into play. Um, so, you know, there are countries in the world where if you share data with someone, it has to be in the same country. So that mm-hmm. means uh, we have to have some technical footprint, you know, in their country to receive the data. They can't send it to us, you know, over a tunnel or something like that through through over the Internet. There are places uh, where only certain aspects of the data can be shared, for example. Um, so a lot of uh, and, and by the way, I describe this as an advantage, right, because we uh, we have a limited set of stuff that we work with uh, as far as data exchange, right? It's think uh, uh, network uh, traffic information, uh, think uh, DNS uh, data, pa- you know, passively collected DNS data, stuff like that. So we don't have um, we don't have like a massive laundry list of problems to solve in that space. We have uh, a short list of of data types that we have to work with. Uh, but like you said, you know, there's regulatory aspects uh, to it all that are different, you know, largely different uh, from country to country, uh, way beyond just ideas like GDPR and stuff like that. But I mean, like actual specific legislation that says, you know, you can or can't share, you know, I don't know, IP metadata, for example. There are some countries that consider that to be PII. Uh, And we do sometimes find instances where someone is like, oh, well, I'd like to do a data exchange with you. Uh, And then when we go look, we found out that the person was about to potentially break the law in their own country. Uh, and we have to let them know, like, well, actually, you we appreciate that you want to partner with us, but uh, in your country, you know, that's not possible. But how we go about it uh, is, you know, I guess a lot of uh, legal awareness. Uh, we make great use of our general counsel. Uh, we make great use of external counsel when there are, you know, specific uh, nuanced questions that we have. Uh, but as far as our service delivery goes, uh, as a U.S.-based company, uh, we have a U.S.-based data center footprint for the most part for these services. So we uh, pretty much just pay attention to like OFAC, export control law, you know, that every other country or sorry, every other company in the country has to to worry about. Uh, So when it comes to doing business, we don't have to do uh, a lot of homework, but enabling businesses, like you said, uh, a cultural and uh, geographic uh, amalgamation. Yeah. And the reason why, that's one of the reasons why I asked is because like uh, electric outlets, there is no standard, right? And so every country is running its own policy standards, minimum requirements, uh, legal requirements, whatever the case may be. As companies grow, 
international business inevitably happens, right? For software companies, it happens quicker because it's just easier to reach the customers of international places. Whereas like physical goods companies, of course, they have to have a supplier, distributor, all this other stuff. So a physical goods company is a little bit more challenging and a a data-driven company can be quicker to international markets. From your perspective, do you see like, I don't want to like put any nation on blast, but do you see like cyber threats that want to attack let's say US-based companies recognize like, hey, policies are a little bit more lax in these countries. We're going to go in that way. Like, do you see this? Like, I'm sure that you constantly see the people testing and probing, like, how do I get into this thing? Um, give us an idea where you see like the the threat actors right now. What are they, I guess, yeah, how so are they doing it? That happens all the time, uh, especially uh, at like the nation state uh, level. So APT threats. Um, where they will uh, purposely identify a region of the world that they want to uh, either hide there or uh, wrongly attribute uh, an activity. So like a standard false flag attack, right? Mm. Um, And we do see that very often. Uh, There's people, that's uh, probably one of the big driving hurdles uh, that keeps retaliatory uh, legislation from happening. You know, there have been multiple attempts uh, by the government uh, U.S. government to get uh, the approval to enable kinetic responses, meaning physical uh, responses to cyber attack. They are saying, you know, they, where they want to make them an act of war, if you will, uh, where they wow. want to authorize, you know, a cruise missile strike in response wow. for a denial of service attack. But they always, always run into this attribution problem, which is, well, how do you know that's where that's where they actually did? How do you know that that system isn't compromised? Um, and and someone's just relaying through there. Um, so, but we do see that all the time. There are whole networks. Uh, so uh, there's a couple angles to this, right? There are networks that are built purposely uh, to allow this stuff. So there are uh, providers out there that are what's called bulletproof hosting companies, uh, where they will uh, deliberately and and uh, uh, even say so right on their website as part of their marketing uh, or as part of their uh pitch to attract customers is that we won't respond to legal requests. We won't respond to complaints. um, And uh, we will route your uh, data uh, specifically around countries where we think wiretap happens. Uh, That's not uncommon at all. Mm. They go so far as to, for example, physically host uh, services. So think the servers themselves They'll physically host them in uh, one country uh, where uh, that they know that they could be safe. Maybe they've paid off the police. Maybe they have uh, political uh, capabilities or political power. Um, But where then, though, they will use uh, private optical networks uh, to back end route the traffic so that it then appears to be somewhere else in the world. So that even if you did try uh, to block them, shut them down, they can just pop up in another country. The same services, the same physical servers, you know, being served over a, a private wave. Um, so there's a bunch of that that happens, like I said, both physically as well as, you know, electronically, uh, where people uh, either avoid certain countries or they purposely go to countries uh, where they know uh, either the law is lax. Uh, you know, there are countries in the world uh, where it's only illegal to hack someone who is in the same country. Uh, but anyone else that you <laughs> happen to attack, there's no law against uh, against you doing that. That's uh, fascinating. Is, yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, so so and that's 
the landscape that we live in uh, and adversaries are aware of that and, and absolutely make use of that. So for yourself, you know, you're the CIO, you're in charge of quite a bit of responsibility. You have team members, you mentioned before this culture of building talent um, through experience. Give us an idea. How, how do you do it? And how do you recommend others to do it to like, I guess, recruit, retain and build, build this knowledge base? Because you are in, I would say to everyone in technology says that they have, uh, you know, they're always learning, which I don't doubt, but there is something unique about what your company does. I think it's a little bit different than what others do in regards to the amount of things that you have to be made aware of. You mentioned already international, like the gravity of which you just described, you know, I've never heard that. I always thought that uh, like a data hack or data breach problem would be maybe self-contained to the engineers. And you're talking about like nation states wanting to launch a strike against another, like, dude, (laughs) this is serious. This is pretty darn serious. Give us an idea of your ability, how you try your best to keep your team in this like always learning mode. And also learning the things that are most important, because of course, there's a lot of things that you could learn. And of course you could also learn things that are, you know, not that useful. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, like you said, uh, keep people always learning. It is a cliche kind of answer, right? Yeah. Um, it's like, well, sure you are. But um, teaching people something is different than empowering them with something, right? Like, so if I teach you how to tie a granny knot, uh, which is uh, a style of, of way to fasten shoes to your feet, right? That is useful knowledge, right? But if I convinced you of a place you wanted to go that made you want to put your shoes on and therefore need to learn how to tie your shoes are two different things, right? One is, you know how to tie a knot. The other is you want to go somewhere that facilitates your drive to want to tie the knot. So more than uh, more than just learning stuff, you need to make people driven. You have to have people uh, who have either some type of mission. Uh, you know, um, I'm a U.S. Marine Corps veteran. Uh, that's a big part of my leadership model is uh, to a shared vision. We all understand uh, what the uh, what an objective is. Uh, and then it's my job to motivate people to want to solve that objective. It's not my job to teach them exactly how to solve for the objective. It's not my job uh, to teach them specific nuanced methods. Uh, in fact, I would argue don't do that because mm. uh, some of the greatest genius you have may be the person who doesn't yet know this new way to solve the problem. Uh, and the fact that they're coming to something, you know, greenfield uh, is going to turn out to be, you know, where some innovation comes from. Uh, I also don't discount lazy approaches. Like if someone says, oh, well, this is way easier. I like to explore those. Uh, okay. even, if, even when I look at them and think like, huh, I don't know that that's a good idea. I'd rather try it because you never know where innovation is going to be. So I would say focus less uh, what we do or what I do as a leader uh, is I focus less on uh, getting people to be learning all the time. And I focus more on uh, getting people to maintain a motivational focus on the problem sets. Uh, and I let them discover what things they need to learn to get there. Uh, I let them discover then how to apply that knowledge. Uh, And what I find is that 
Um, and, and a really good example of this is regular expression. Um, so regular expressions uh, in software are a way to write, you could think of as like catch-all statements using uh, uh, letters, right? You could say, I want to catch certain se- sentences that match a certain pattern. And a regular expression is a way to you know programmatically catch those patterns, right? Well, I can tell you that every almost everybody has to look up uh, regular expression almost every time they use it because they don't commit uh, the nuance of writing a regular expression to their memory. So even though they've learned it, uh, they didn't have a drive or a reason to maintain it because mm. they just go back and look it up. Uh, so that that's one of the examples. And regular expression is like every day. I probably use regex every day, uh, whether it's just to grab a piece of log output or uh, sometimes to find uh, specific strings in a document or things like that. I use regex a lot. Um, but like I said, I still uh, have to go look it up, even though I have some kind of motivation, but that motivation isn't strong enough because I know, well, I'll just go look it up and I'll use it. Uh, and you know, it's that easy. So I approach it instead, uh, to give people, you know, drive, uh, as opposed to knowledge, they'll find the knowledge themselves. Uh, if you motivate them, uh, enough to want to get to where it is, you need them to go. Yeah. So this inspirational, aspirational model for you, like, because Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, they just think, um, or let's say a lot of managers, I think it's usually like in the form of money and bonuses, right? That's usually mm-hmm. the problem with that is like, you can only, there's only so much. And so once there, and then you never know if that's enough of whatever that person's lifestyle is like, is it even motivating enough? Is that, that this like inspirational thing is what you're talking about is when you were talking about it, I kept thinking to myself, cause we had, um, we got to speak with some of the team members from Fender Guitars. And mm-hmm. they're talking about one of the biggest problems plaguing the music industry is like there's like the the most popular musicians of today do not inspire the next generation of kids to play guitar. So if you think about like in the 80s, Eddie Van Halen, Slash, you had all these like characters almost mm-hmm. that were like known for playing guitar and like everyone wanted to play like them. And now most the most popular form of music to a lot of the younger generation doesn't involve instruments. And so they're seeing like massive declines. They cannot figure out how to get people motivated by it. Um, Right. And uh, this, and guitar is a painful, that's a painful (laughs) hobby, right? When you go to learn it, that's really rough on your fingers yeah, uh, and your knuckles, you know? Um, So for people to uh, want to do it, uh, that's a big part of doing it. Like yeah. way beyond learning notes and scales and all this type of stuff is your ability to like fight through blisters on your fingers uh, <laughs> to want to yeah. do it, you know? So, but, and, and, you know, it is interesting to see how uh, we've moved to these, and I hate to use the word easier, right? Because I, I, I have no doubt that it's still hard, but there's people right, making whole albums on their iPhone, right? And yes. like you said, no instruments at all. Um, yes. and, and, uh, it is interesting to think that we could get to a point where people don't know how to, uh, do that unless you're a super specialized person. Like that's kind of crazy. Yeah. So when you, when you do that, that like mission driven aspirational approach, mm-hmm. I guess how give us an, or do you have an example of like, Hey, you, where you set a goal for your team to like, Hey, I want to solve this problem. And cause I, I, I'd love for our audience to hear it because on paper, it sounds easy. Like, oh, let's. this is the mission. We want to go here. I won't tell you how to get here, but I want you to come up with ideas. How do we get to this spot? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear an example or something because maybe if through that example, people can say, oh, okay, that's how I can do it with my team. 
Yeah. Well, in our case, um, I have the benefit of uh, our founder, uh, Rabbi Rob Thomas. He created the company with a societal mission, um, Mm. and that is to save and improve human lives. Uh, And uh, he wanted to make a company that was altruistic and that in order to do that, you have to be profitable. You have to be a like in order to uh, help uh, stop, say, child predation uh, on the Internet, you have to be a functioning company. So then you're going to need to be able to make products uh, that uh, you can sell to make money so you can attract talent. Some percentage of that talent you need to then uh, apply to stopping, you know, uh, child sexual predators on, on the Internet. And that's just you know one example. Um, but so I have the benefit uh, of a higher uh, order mission. Uh, and then all of the subcomponents of whatever we're doing, I can tie back to that. Um, and, you know, depending on what you're doing, say you're in ITOT, like, uh, you know, maybe you are in power control systems, you know, get your employees to have the mission of, you know, we're going to keep the lights on. We're going to keep people's dryers working. We're going to uh, make it so they have a functioning stove at home or, you know, uh, this kind of broader mission. Uh, and then uh, what I do is I frame then everything that we do against that. Uh, and I tell my staff uh, at all times, if you ever get to a point where you're unsure of how is what I'm doing right now, how does this one thing, how does this tie into that overall mission? Uh, and so for me as a leader, uh, my task is to have those answers uh, readily available, right? So if someone comes and says, you know, well, why are we doing this code release as opposed to uh, not adding this other feature? Well, I need to be able to go and show them, well, this other feature isn't as requested uh, by as many customers. Uh, more customers are requesting this feature, which will then encourage those customers to uh, have stronger retention. Uh, they'll stay our customer longer. And that money then goes into uh, paying headcounts and getting salaries. And, and I can tie back uh, to uh, through the business mission to this overarching mission. Uh, so you can take the task mission, show how the task mission relates to the business mission, how the business mission maybe relates to a vision mission. Uh, and that's what I do is, is just tie them together. Uh, again, though, uh, this is, you know, a lot of Marine Corps methodology. Uh, I hate to use the Marine Corps as a good example of anything. Uh, but <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the things we are good at is uh, maintaining motivation in people. Yeah, unifying missions, man. Yeah. I got to ask, though, did, is the founder of Cymru, um also military? Yes, he was. Uh, uh, he was uh, a Navy corpsman. Um, so, and then you know, um, got into IT when IT was still brand new. He was like a backbone engineer and and uh, did really well in like the initial stock offerings and things like that when IT companies were starting to uh, start to really make money. Um, and he turned around and reapplied. Uh, you know, his investments to start the company. Yeah. Listen, the, it, like you said, it, it definitely pays or it helps a great deal for, to, to work for organizations already led with that similar philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're walking right down the path, the, the, the harder, the, uh, it's not the harder, the, uh, the mission that you stated from the very top of what can be possible with more secured networks with more mon- like, I mean, I think we now see like uh, clearly information is what is the key to, you know, that criminals need access to and what what needs to be stopped. So I think that is 
That is a, that is the way to do it. If you're uh, if you're out there listening and you're a CIO or CTO or you're running a company and you need to help build this vision leadership, you know I think people say it a lot, but I think Dave, you did a great job of explaining why why it's applicable. Because you know you'll hear everyone's oh it's all about the culture, all about the people. Well, explain. You know what I mean? yeah. <laughs> Tell me how. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, you know people need a fairly it's a fairly short list of things, right? They need uh, care meaning, you know, they need someone to care for them. They need to be loved, you know, let's call it that. And obviously there's outliers, you know, there's uh, people out there who don't care about that, but uh, most everybody wants to be accepted by a group. Uh, And, but what they really want is the time that they spend. uh, They want it to matter. Uh, It's why everybody has hobbies. Uh, It's why everybody uh, has various aspects of their life. But one place where a lot of it falls short is in employment. People, they want, uh, you know, they say life isn't what, or money isn't what life is about, but money certainly enables what life is about, right? That's right. But there's a lot of people who go to work every day uh, unimpassioned, uh, either because, you know, they're not doing something that they enjoy. But I can tell you that it's possible to take things that aren't necessarily enjoyable. Uh, and and if you frame it correctly to the people, if you explain why it matters, why what they're doing matters, uh, that will fulfill that niche. And it can completely change around the psychology of hard work, right? People will not necessarily mind the hard work if they know that it's, if that they know that it matters, uh, you know, to use the guitar uh, analogy again, you know, like you won't care that your fingers are blistered and bleeding uh, because, you know, you finally, we're able to play some song, right? Yeah. Uh, so if you can get that mentality into your employees, then that's you know very powerful. Now, uh, a lot of places start their business uh, with the capital gain as the only intention, right? They want yeah. more money. Yeah. Um, but uh, and that's fine. Uh, there's you know nothing wrong with that. Um, but they do need to get that, like, you know, if nothing else, you need to get your C-suite together uh, and sit down and, and come up with a why does our company matter? Uh, not a, a cheesy vision statement where, you know, uh, which I mean, you, you've seen all these largely cliche mission <laughs> statements uh, that, that are out in the world, but not a not a mission, not a uh, mission statement, but a vision statement, you know, like uh, why? Why are we doing making our company and why does it why is what we're doing going to matter and start from there and then facilitate getting that uh, concept into the in between the ears uh, of every employee that you have. Uh, And that's how you get things done. Now, you do have to hire to people who are open to this notion of a mission. Uh, So we before me thinkers, you know, that type of stuff. Uh, And that's where we spend the bulk of our time uh, is at the interview stage. Like I'll interview 95 people uh, to fill a single seated. uh, Wow. uh, Because it's that critical uh, of a process. And then we go so far as to have uh, cultural uh, interview. Uh, once someone has shown that they have the technical acumen, uh, we then, uh, and not because we're in pursuit of a homogeny, uh, but we sit down and uh, try to get people to, uh, we try to push their buttons and get them to understand that, you know, uh, mission is everything and our mission is to save and improve lives. Uh, and if they're a person who in that process uh, doesn't respond well to these types of ideas, you want to find that out before 
you waste their time and yours because, you know, once you bring someone in to fill a position for you, that position, uh, the reason why you had that position opening is because you had some kind of business problem that you needed solved by somebody with that expertise, right? So if you bring someone in and uh, they only last six months, well, you're now uh, back to having that problem uh, and the solution you thought was the solution wasn't it, right? So it's way better to spend all of that time while you uh, still have the problem as your driver uh, to go find the perfect person or closer to perfect person uh, to the to the situation than have to keep revisiting the problem over and over again. So we kind of go the hard, we go the long way when it comes to uh, staffing. No, that is awesome. Listen, when you the way you, you the way you were describing it, like I said, I, whenever I hear leaders talk, I always think to like, well, what are the practical examples do I have of those things being true? And I think the way you do the cultural interviews is extremely smart. I think that's one, you know, you, you just, you cannot figure out if somebody is about, because of course in an interview stage, they, they say they're about the mission, but you like the, the right. testing that, that probing that you're talking about. Right. Typically yeah, we have, um, what, I would call, what do they say? Have, like uh, adversity reveals character. You know what that's I mean? Right. Like, yeah. So it's like, you got to push their buns a little bit. <laughs> we do. Yeah, we do. We, we, uh, we, uh, typically have like the good, the good interviewer and the bad interviewer model, you know, yeah. not really, you know, not really a bad interviewer, but, uh, we will uh, transition people psychologically from very easy softball questions and then put them into, uh, which are, you know, kind of hot button questions about all different types of things, you know, hey. uh, what, what's their take on, you know, uh, global poverty, uh, and then, you know, based on their answer, give them like uh, we devil, play devil's advocate. Right. And and uh, we take counterpoints that obviously we don't necessarily have the counterpoint, but we're asking them to try to make them uncomfortable and see how they react in that circumstance. And uh, it's been very useful to us. Uh, and we have people who are very, very smart, get through the whole process. But then at the end, uh, they you know, identify as a narcissist or, you know, they identify as having some type of intolerance uh, for disagreement uh, hmm. and things like that. And, and uh, we flush them out then um, and, and, and uh, spare ourselves, you know, the problem of having a problem come back because that's worse than uh, what's worse than having a problem is to have a problem over and over and over again. Yeah. Anyone, uh, anyone who's ever uh, <laughs> had a nagging problem with their car can attest to that. It just gets so absolutely. freaking annoying. You know, you, the way you hit, the way you describe it, and I think about the category that you're in, for example, a big part of cybersecurity is always going to be incident response. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes things happen late at night when you're, let's say, would rather sleep or you would rather be hanging out, hanging out, doing something else. And so when I think about when that moment comes, like you described, if I don't believe in the greater mission, it's going to be hard for me to, you know, jump up at the problem. And you need people that want to jump up and solve that problem. Yeah, absolutely. If you (laughs) don't have buy-in, I would argue it's impossible for people to act with integrity. Um, you know, and integrity is a critical component, right? Integrity in the sense of, you know, doing what's right, even when no one's looking that 3am scenario that you described, you know, where something, uh, is gonna need to be done the right way then not left for people in the morning. Um, and you don't want to rely wholly on discipline, uh, because that's not, uh, that's not actually an ideal motivator. Discipline should be the last thing that they have to draw on. You want them to start with integrity, 
an integrity, I would argue, is only possible with genuine desire for the outcome. Yeah. Uh, because because you won't. You have to you really want to solve this. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dave, it was awesome having you back on the show. I want to say thank you for rejoining us. Uh, for those who are listening and want to hear more from David, we're going to relink his uh, first episode at the bottom of the show notes. But thanks again for joining us on IT Visionaries. It was fun. It was a really fun, fascinating conversation. And the the thing that I always think about when I talk to CIOs and CTOs is you'll hear a theme from a lot of them that technology is just what we do. It's act, it's still a people driven business, and so. We heard about your beliefs on AI, talk about culture and instant responses and many other things in between. And I think you're you're a living example. I think your thank stories, you. I think yeah, your stories demonstrate it. We are the same. Uh, we are <laughs> we are uh, we are in the people business with a technology slant. So yeah, we're, we're <laughs> exactly. one of those companies as well. Exactly. Thanks again for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for having me.